Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue our study of the apostasy in this addition to our study of the book of 2 Timothy, class teacher Doug Brady is bringing out the loss of the instructions given to us in Timothy. Today, we look at more of the issues that are before us and learn the way to correct them. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class continues to grow, and we appreciate and look forward to people who visit our class. We have a short time of fellowship just before Doug starts the lesson, and we look forward to meeting you soon. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and find a good seat. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We finished last time we were talking about an understanding, uh, the coming understanding of this apostasy. We were studying the sign of an end of the age of the church being this apostasy, and others are going to push back if we speak out about apostasy. Others will push back, and they will push back against us. One of the ways that is very common for a pushback, among a number of things, is to say, Jesus never said anything about that. You know, if Jesus knew something about this coming apostasy you're talking about, certainly he would say something. Now, let me give you an example. You know what they also say about that? There's not going to be any rapture. If there was going to be a rapture, Jesus would say something about it. And I think, have they never read John 14, 1 through 3? Or do they just ignore that? And it doesn't count because it's contrary to their view. So, one of the first questions we want to answer today is this. Does Jesus ever mention the coming apostasy? That's what we want to talk about. Now, we're going to have to have some background here, and we're going to go through it, and we're going to try and understand, and the first thing we have to do is we have to have a short lesson on parables. We need to study, understand what parables are, how they're used, and what's going on, because parables was a method of teaching that Jesus used. Parables was a method of teaching in Judaism. But before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, I pray that you direct us today, that you protect us today, that you help us to understand what is going on in our nation and in our nation's churches and among people who are supposed to be strong believers. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to understand what our duties and responsibilities are in the face of this upcoming apostasy. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, 
When I was a young man in high school, I attended high school Bible classes here in our church. And one of the things they taught us in the New Testament high school Bible was a parable is an earthly story uh, with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, that was definition of a parable related only to the uh, Bible. Uh, more generally, uh, it's a, just a story that is used to illustrate some important meaning or concept. But Jesus frequently used uh, parables in, in illustrating profound truths. And the stories that he told were easily remembered by people who heard. You know, in Jesus' time, some, a lot of you who sit around these tables, you take notes. In Jesus' time, could they take notes? No. Well, maybe in the sand, but those didn't last very long. Uh, so, you know, the supply of parchment was not for the common man. And uh, when you tell these stories, they're easily remembered. The characters are bold, the symbolism is rich in meaning, and you do it. And uh, Jesus would regularly use parables where he'd talk about things that were common among the people that they understood. He talked about salt, he talked about bread, he talked about sheep, things like that. But then there came a time in his ministry where Jesus began teaching using parables almost exclusively. Parables that a lot of people could not understand. Even a lot of people today can't understand. Why would he do such a thing? Maybe the first of these parables was the parables of the four soils and seeds. And then when he would take his disciples away privately, he would explain that to them. And let me talk to you about the explanation he gave with this parable that no one seemed to be able to understand, even, even the disciples. They had this conversation. It's found in Matthew 13. And it says this. The disciples said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them it has not been granted. But to them it has not been granted, for whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I want you to think about that. That seems, in a way, kind of harsh to me. But let's talk even further. Jesus goes on. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah uh, is being fulfilled, which he says, Hearing you will hear but shall, and shall not understand. Seeing you will see, and not see but not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And you see, from this point on in Jesus' ministry, he, he spoke in parables. And he would only explain it to his disciples. Those who had continually rejected his message 
they were left in spiritual blindness. Now, this distinction that he's making, I think, is important between these people. It said, he made a clear distinction between those who had been given ears to hear and those who persist in unbelief. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that speaks to us and into our hearts. And we need to understand it. Moving forward. The same concept with the disciples is true today. In John 16.3, he, he says he's opened their eyes to the, uh, to the light of truth. That is the Holy Spirit. And so we must come to understand what is going on here and what is, what is Jesus doing. As I listen to that and I hear what's going on, I say, I'm having a hard time understanding that. Because they say they hear, but they don't hear, but they hear. They heard what he was saying. How can you say they don't hear? Well, that's because I didn't understand something. There's a word that I have used a lot in teaching. We've talked about it a lot. It's called Shema. There's a certain portion of the Old Testament referred to as the Shema. It means to hear. That's the word that Isaiah used when he made this prophecy. What does that word mean? Well, it means to hear, right? Oh, no. There is not an English word to match this word from Hebrew. And let me tell you what it means. It means to hear and to obey. To listen to and follow the instructions you're given. So what is it? They may hear, but they're not obeying. And that's the difference. And now we can come to see it and understand it. So there's no problem whatsoever now understanding this. And let's look at Isaiah again, just so you can see it. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. He has said, I've had it with these people. Their judgment is coming. Their time is up. And so we come to see this. In fact, I thought, does Shema really involve this concept of obey? And I, I could test that. I could go through the Old Testament where it's just the word is translated with English word of obey appears. And see what Hebrew word was there for that word. Is it Shema or a different word? And most of the time it's Shema. It's there talking about hearing and obeying. So why is Jesus doing this? What is going on? If you want to open your Bibles and follow along there, you can. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to look at it carefully. Now, we're not going to look at it in as complete detail everything because we'd be here for two or three weeks just on Matthew. We're starting in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 was the last, speaking of the last Old Testament prophet. Who is the last Old Testament prophet? John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And he came, and what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean, the kingdom of heaven, when he says that? 
the millennial kingdom. It's there. Wait a second. It didn't happen. They were in the millennial kingdom right after John's time. That was because the Jewish people did what? They rejected the Messiah. Now, were there some who didn't? Yeah, some who didn't. But the vast majority did. The leaders did. And then there were those who followed because they didn't want any trouble in their lives. And they wanted to just go along to get along. And so they rejected. They allowed this man to be killed. But was John the only one preaching that, the gospel of the kingdom? No. Now, was it a different gospel than our gospel? No, except for one small thing, the time they were in. You see? Look at it from this perspective. In Genesis chapter 15, believe God and was reckoned unto him to righteousness. What was he believing? He was believing that God would send the Messiah who would solve the sin problem and save them from their sins. Had it happened yet? No. But he was looking forward to that promise. When you were saved, were you looking forward to the promise that God's going to send the Messiah and he's going to save you from your sins? No. You were looking back that it was going to happen. That it already had happened. And that you'd been saved. You know, when I look at it, seems to me it's easier to get saved in the time of my time than it is in Abraham's time. It hadn't happened in Abraham's time. It had already happened for me. Now, the gospel of the kingdom measures this. The kingdom is going to come if Israel will receive their Messiah. Who else preached the gospel of the kingdom? Well, Jesus did. Look in Matthew 4.23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Why was he doing those healings? To prove the validity of his message. The, if you accept me as the Messiah, the kingdom's coming. All right? That's what he's saying. And we need to understand that. Did Jesus limit the gospel presentation that he was making to Israel and not include anyone else. Well, let's see, Don. Don says no, but other people are saying yes. Look in Matthew 10, 5. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, do not go to the way of the Gentiles, do not enter to any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, here's the thing. Were the Samaritans in a position to determine whether they were going to receive Jesus as their Messiah? No. Were the Gentiles in a position? Does it? No. The Messiah was sent first to who? Israel. And Israel had to accept and receive him. Then the Messiah would send Israel out into the rest of the world to share that gospel. But they refused. In fact, they said, Gentiles are best used as kindling for the fires of hell. That was their position towards Gentiles. I thought they were rather biased myself. But each gospel includes a provision usually for the gospel's writer belief of the rejection of the Messiah when it happened. John had it at the time of the, when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and he was rejected. 
Matthew has a little different. This is when I believe they rejected him. And you can find this rejection in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22, where he says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, this man can't be the Messiah. Look what he's done. Nobody's ever done this. He must be the Messiah. And then the Pharisees heard this. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This man is a, either a demon himself or a follower of these demons. And they're casting out, he's casting out these demons to trick you, to make you think that he's the Messiah when he's really not. You need to reject this man as he is from the devil. That's what they're saying. And that's a clear rejection as Jesus as the Messiah. So what happens now? Israel has rejected the Messiah. What's the next thing coming up then? Is the kingdom coming? No, there's been a rejection, a clear rejection. So what's coming next? Israel, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you on a shelf. And you're going to stay there for a long time. And I'm going to bring in something else called the church. It's my bride. If you look at your wedding ceremonies and culture, it pictures this coming bride. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to create this church. And this church is going to do what you refuse to do. It's going to disseminate the gospel throughout the whole world. But when I talk about it, I'm going to talk about it in parables because you're not going to understand. Only those who are the initiated, the ones who are following me and believe in me, they will understand and I will help them to understand. So if you look now in the rest of Matthew, you're going to see seven parables. Seven parables that Jesus is going to talk about. Seven parables that these Pharisees and these other people can't understand some of which he has to explain to his disciples, but he will. And I'm going to, we don't have time to look at every one of them in detail, but I'm going to give you a brief explanation of each of these seven, and then we're going to go back and look at the most important one. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to mention that God, um, I see a parallel right here where God hardened the hearts because they received him not, but then it also says in the last days that it will cause a confusion in the land for the people that reject them. I think you are seeing that now. But let's go on with these parables real quick, and then I think you'll hear some things about that. The first one is the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils. There were four soils, but only one type of soil became productive. He would sow his seeds in each of these four. Three of them would fail, and one of them would be successful. What's he talking about? He's talking about during the church age... The gospel message going out. What in the, if you look at the parable of the soils, three of them reject the gospel message. So not very many people will. It's the same concept of I got a wide gate and a narrow gate. Those going through the narrow gate will be going to me. Those going through the wide gate, they're going to hell. And that's kind of a blunt way of saying it, but it's the truth. And we need to understand that. That's the parable of the sower. The next parable is the wheat and the tares. And what happens is they plant the wheat. And then after a little while, the, the, 
the managers of the farm come in and they say to the master, there are tares growing up. There's weeds growing up in our, in our wheat. And he said, yes, an enemy has snuck in, obviously, and planted that to injure me. Who do you think that enemy is supposed to be? That's right. So what you have is in this growing up situation among the people, even in the churches, some who are saved and some who aren't. And in the end, they, they gather up all the tares and they bound them up and they burn them. And the ones that are harvested is the wheat. And he said, but you can't tell until you get to the very end. So that's the wheat and the tares. The next one is the parable of the mustard seed. And Jesus says, this mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. But when you plant it, what happens? A mustard tree grows. And how big is that mustard? It's the biggest of all the trees. And you know what he's picturing? The church. How did the church start? How many people were there? The first meeting of the church. 120. And it was interesting. What were they doing? Were they preaching in that first meeting? Were they studying the scriptures in that first meeting? They were praying in that first meeting. And the Holy Spirit came on them in power. And they go out. And then there was some preaching. And what it's saying is, this church that I'm going to create starts very, very small. But it's going to expand greatly. I've heard people who I think know tell me that there's 100 million believers in the land of China alone. Now, they're not being treated very well right now. But when you throw gasoline on a fire, but be that as it may, it's amazing how many believers that have been. And it also expands. I mean, the church was just in, in Israel to start with. And now it's all over the world. It's expanded in numbers. It's expanded in ge geographical location. And that is the parable of the mustard seed. Now the next one, the parable of the leaven. The lump of dough or cash of flour, which represents the church, and leaven is sin and corruption. And we'll get more into this in just a minute. Then you have the parable of the hidden treasure. And what happens is, this guy is going along, he's looking in this field, and he finds a great treasure. And he looks at this, this is awesome, but said, this is my field. So he buries it back, hides it up, and he tells everything he has, and he goes to the owner and says, I'd like to buy your field. And the owner says, sure, well, you're overpaying for it. I'll take it. Give me the money. You can have the land. Then he unearths the treasure, and now he has it. And you know what this is picturing? This is picturing Israel being buried for a while and then unearthed at the end of time to then have the last seven years in which he is going to bring. And, you know, I didn't realize this. He is bringing a revival in the tribulation, by the 144,000, and there will be millions of people who will come to know the Lord. And what will happen to most of those millions? Beheaded. Killed because they're Christians. In those days, you'll have the right to hunt Christians. And they'll, of course, take away all our guns so you couldn't shoot back. So, that's, I just added that that's not in the scripture. <laughs> now, the next one is the story of the pearl of great price. In this one, it's a little different. He finds the pearl, and he immediately goes, sells everything he has, and buys that pearl. That's talking about the church. What price did he pay for the church? The Son of God. 
And so you see, now, he's not talking about Israel anymore, hardly, except for Israel at the end. He's talking about the church, but he doesn't want to explain it to the Pharisees, only to his people. He goes on with uh, one more. It's the parable of the householder, where you have the old and the new. And right in the end, that you join the old and the new. Well, we're going, I don't think, I don't know if you were aware of this, we're going to a feast pretty soon. And that feast is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And I will be there, I hate to admit this, but I will be a bride. Hopefully I'll be wearing all white. But I'm going to be joined, the church is going to be joined with Israel in that feast. And there's going to be this joiner in the household. And it'll be the joining of the two groups that, of people that God loves so much. His nation Israel, which is the apple of his eye, and the church. Yes? Or is that possibly, this is just a straight up question, Ephesians 1 and 2, talking about tearing down the wall of separation between the Jew and Gentile, creating the one new man. Yes, but so few Jews are going to respond. This is when... You know, at the end of the tribulation dawn, there's a tremendous repentance of about a third of the Jewish people alive, at, alive during that period, whole period. The other two-thirds may have been killed. And that's when it's going to join together. Plus, people like Moses, Abraham, Daniel, all of those people will be joining. Now, obviously, we need to go back to the one that we want to look at the most. And that's the parable of the leaven. Jesus repeats that not only in Matthew 13, 33, but also in Luke 13, 20 through 21. I want you to look at that. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, as you think about this just a second, how many characters or elements are there in this, in this parable? I hear two and I hear three. Who says three? All right, three. Tell me what they are. The woman, the leaven. Would you agree with that? The woman, the leaven, and the flour. All right, that's the correct answer. Sorry. The leaven. What is leaven? Leaven can be one of two things so that you understand. Leaven can either be a lump of old dough, which is in a high state of fermentation, or it can be a substance such as yeast that can be put. We usually use yeast because you can just buy it. It's readily available where if you're saving your own. I used to, one, one summer I worked on a, on a ranch out in West Texas, and they had this guy who had a starter for sourdough biscuits. And he would protect that and use it. I'm not going to tell you how he kept it being stirred up. But the fact is that that's that kind of thing. And Jesus is not referring here to a physical reaction of giving lift to dough, but a spiritual action. Now, those who oppose what I'm saying is saying, this leaven that he's talking about is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And what this parable is really talking about is the church spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. Now, if that's true, their interpretation, 
What does that mean? That means at the time of this, that leaven will spread to what? Everything. It'll all be leavened. What does that mean then under their interpretation? Well, the whole world's going to be saved. Right? Well, there are people believe that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. Is the church going to bring in the kingdom? Is it the church's kingdom? Who will bring in the kingdom? Jesus. He is the only one. Will things get better and better and better until he does? No. They're going to get worse and worse and worse. Let me tell you. It's interesting, these people, how they think. If you look everywhere else in the Bible, and it speaks of leaven 18 times in the Bible, I did a search. Every time it's either talking about sin, corruption, evil influence. Everywhere. They say, well, yeah, everywhere but here. You begin to see the, how their argument fails. But what this is talking about is sin, etc., etc. Now, the next part we need to look at. Who is the woman? Who is the woman here? We need to come to understand what it's talking about here about this second element. This woman is someone who is wicked and evil. How do you know that? She's the one that does what with the leaven? There's a word though, Dawn, you need to look at. What does she do with it? Hit it. Does that, does that carry the meaning of an intentional action as opposed to a careless one? Now, when you hide something, you intend to do it. Now, Julie will tell you that sometimes I hide things and then I can't find them. But that's not the case here. Does it, there's something more, though, than just an intentional action. It also intends the result. Because this woman knows what leaven does. And she's putting it in this flower, intending for the effect to have. Now, some of you are not going to like what I'm going to say here. But it's something we have to understand. When you read the writings of Paul, he makes a distinction between Adam and Eve and their sin. And what does he say about Eve? She was deceived. What does he say about women in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the church. Well, let's not say be quiet harshly like that. Let's say they're not to preach. They're not to be teaching men. And they're not to be exercising authority over men. So any church that has a female preacher, what do you know about them? They're unbiblical. All right. Now, some of you may not like that. But I'm just telling you what the scripture says. You know, it says the man's to be the leader. Now, have women been the backbone of the church? Yes. Why? Because the men have abdicated their roles. And here again, just like Adam and Eve, at whose feet do we lay the blame at? Man. No, the man. <laughs> the man. We are responsible. And so, now, that's the woman. Now, the flower. Some of your Bibles will say three measures of flower. Some will say three pecks of flower. At the time 
that the Bibles were translated three measures of flour. They didn't have sufficient findings and, and, and other manuscripts which clearly indicate what this measure represents in the Greek, and it represents a peck. But this is a tremendous amount of, of flour, more than a family would need. I did some research on this, and it indicates that this is enough flour to make 12 loaves of bread. Well, in those days, if you made 12 loaves of bread for just your family, half of them were going to go bad. You, Jewish families would make one or two loaves a day, they would, and then they would go to the common uh, bakery, get them baked off for them, and then take them home fresh, and then they would do that the next day or the second day after that. But you don't get 12 loaves of bread and try and store them. Jesus' time. So this is a tremendous amount of flour that this is going on, and we need to come to understand that and what it's saying here about this. So, as we, as we look farther, we begin to see that this parable is talking about what? The coming apostasy. Because the flower is the church. And remember, how does it come in? By guile, by deceit, by trickery. Stealthily it comes in, and then it starts to spread, and pretty soon it spreads. And by the time the rapture occurs, after the rapture occurs, it'll be complete leaven in the church. Now, Jesus is talking about this, and I almost missed this as I was studying. But who's listening to this parable? Well, Pharisees are listening to this parable. When they hear three pecks of flour, what would immediately go through their mind? The grain offering in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 2, it talks about the grain offering. And in chapter 5 specifically, you know what it says? In this, when you bring flour for a grain offering, there shall be no leaven in it, completely pure. They probably were concerned. Now, their thinking was, see, he's trying to abolish the law. But no, it's a picture here of what is going to happen to church. They had no understanding that about this concept of the church. Now, here we are. We've got this concept that Jesus talked about the coming apostasy. And he gave us a parable so that we could understand it. But now, it seems to me that this is apostasy is coming, and it can't be stopped. Does that not appear to you to be accurate? So what are we to do? Well, the answer is very simple. We're to be obedient. And I believe that God has given us two responsibilities. One of them we're going to talk about today, and the next one we're going to talk about next week. And the first responsibility is we are to be watchmen. That's our responsibility. We are to be watchmen. In ancient Israel, they would put watchmen up on the high walls. And you'd see these watchmen, and there'd be watchmen up on the walls. And then they, they got to thinking, you know what? We could do better if we could space them out even farther. And they would, be, they would build these towers, 
And the towers would go out far enough where you could sound the ram's horn and the one closer to the city, the watchmen say on the city walls, could hear you. And then they'd build another tower out even farther where the guy in this tower could hear. And if the enemy's coming, the city and the people could be warned. Now, God then took this example and he tried to use it to teach their people. Now, God says, I need watchmen in a spiritual sense. And I am calling you to be that. In Ezekiel 33, 7, we're going to look at Ezekiel 33 in just a minute. But in 7, God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them the warning from me. This role of watchman, I believe, is carried out into the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 70, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I want you to think about this a second. I don't like saying this, but my wife reminds me about it so many times. Does a teacher have a higher accountability level than the one he teaches? Does a pastor have a higher accountability level than those who he's pastoring? Yes, we both do. And because of that, we need to come to understand one of those accountabilities is a watchman. You know, in Mark 14, 38, he was talking to three of his disciples and he said, I need you to be watchmen. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. In Mark 14, 38, every believer priest, I'm convinced, is to be a spiritual watchman to some degree in his or her life. It may be a watchman on the walls of your family. It may be a watchman on the walls of your church. Maybe even on the walls of your city. Or in some circumstances, God may entrust you being a spiritual watchman on the walls of your nation. Watchmen will have a more advanced calling in the aspect of their prayer life. A spiritual watchman is one who's been uniquely equipped by God. He has eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what he was talking about in Matthew chapter 13. A watchman is many times equipped by God to see things that other people can't see. I remember sitting next to a watchman like that last Sunday. And she looked at me. Tim Keller? Bill Hybels? A Catholic mystic? What's going on here, Doug? I said, ooh, you're right. But you see, enemies come disguised. But a spiritual watchman is alert and blows the trumpet and sounds so that the family members can be, can be brought to safety. And he'll see things that others don't see. Now, understand that a watchman doesn't just see and recognize he has another responsibility. What's that other responsibility? Warning. He's got to warn. Now, I've taken, maybe some people think I take my responsibilities in this regard too too far because I have a ram's horn and every once in a while I'll blow it when Julie's not prepared. And uh, I tell her this twofold, I'm the watchman on the wall. In addition, you know, I'm preparing her for the rapture because, the, you know, the trumpet will sound and I want her to recognize... No. <laughs> 
rather a mischievous husband instead of a concerned watchman. But we need to understand. Now let's look at Ezekiel 33. Because this is a passage that talks about it, I think, at length. And I want you to hear what God said to Ezekiel. O son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Now we're going to start in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming again uh, upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned... And the sword comes and takes a person away from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will be required at the watchman's hand. Uh Uh-oh. That sounds serious to me. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And therefore you shall share a word from my mouth and warn them for me. If you are a watchman, some may say, I ain't begging the Lord. I don't want to be. Not me. Pick somebody else. He will require of you if you do not warn when you see the enemy coming. When you recognize him through his disguise or her disguise. That's an awesome responsibility. But that is the first responsibility he's called us to. We must be watchmen. The apostasy is among us. We have to watch for what is coming to protect those God wants to protect. You know, when I read a significant statement like that, I can't ignore the question, has God made me a watchman for his people? Has he made you a watchman for the church in which he called me to be a part of? Being a spiritual watchman puts you in a position where you can see and where you can hear. And the scripture in Ezekiel says it very clearly. If the watchman, if I tell the watchman the sword's coming, he needs to warn the people. If he doesn't and they suffer harm, which they will, and it's his fault. Yes. After today, you're bringing this to life because you're watching. We have no excuse now. You're right. David just said, because we've been told this, we no longer have an excuse. We can't claim ignorance, can we? There's something required of a watchman. They have to have some knowledge of the scripture so they can determine, maybe I'm wrong, but this is just my opinion. I believe the people in this class are some of the most well-educated and scripturally sound people in this church. That puts more responsibility on us, does it not? We'll talk about that here in just a second. 
because I, I want you to see that. But my prayer for all of us would be that we make our way into the presence of Almighty God. And when we do that, that He will alert us and we will have to be watchmen. Now, what are the watchmen expected to do? To know the truth and warn of apostasy. You, you got to stay alert. You know, it's interesting when the Jewish people put guards on the walls around the city. You'd have four watches. Some of them were in the middle of the night. If they were to come around and find you sleeping at your guard post, do you know what they would do? They would take uh, an accelerant and throw it on you and light you. You say, that's awfully serious. Yes, it's a very serious matter. Now, I'm not saying God is going to burn you up. But what I'm saying is, if you're going to be a watchman, you need to be prepared. And what does is, what is that preparation need? It requires four things. And if you're a watchman, you need to start looking at your life. Am I prepared? Number one, as far as this preparation goes, knowledge of the Scripture. You must know the Scriptures. How can you spot the wrong thing if you don't know the right thing? You know, we've used this uh, illustration many times before, but the Secret Service is in charge uh, of counterfeiting and stopping counterfeiting from going on in our nation of our money. They don't study bad money. They only study the good things. They have memorized and imprinted in their mind the $100 bill, the $20 bill, the $50 bill. They can look at it. In fact, I read something here just recently that really good uh, Secret Service agent can be blindfolded, handed a stack of money, and he goes through it and he feels that, oh, this one's not any good. Just by feeling it. But they can do that because they are so familiar with it. We have got to get familiar with God's Word so they know it. So we know it. And so when something is not right, we can say, wait a second, that's not right. Let me ask you, have we been praying for a revival do you think Satan would like to send a fake? Yeah, he would. And get us all going the wrong place. He would love to do that to confuse you and to mess with you and to destroy you. And then you think, well, there's not really going to become a revival. Look at this. This is fake. Or I'm not getting involved in any revivals because I got burned the last time. Satan wants to do those things. You have to know to be able to recognize. Number two, you have to have a closeness with the Lord God. How much time do you spend? I mean, think about the person that spends five minutes a day praying. That's it, five minutes a day. Julie, what would your relationship be like with your husband if he only spent five minutes a day with you? Now, don't say that there's some days when he, that's all he does, but... <laughs> Would it be any good? Would it be any richness or depth to it? Absolutely not. By the way, she's shaking her head. No, it wouldn't be. So you just come to see. We have to get close to him. Spend time with him. Do you know that he wants every marriage to be a triangle relationship? The husband, the wife, and God. And as the husband and wife grow closer to God, what happens to the closeness to them? Just absolutely by definition, they get closer. Number three, the watchman has to, there's got to be a watchfulness for and recognition of the enemy. 
They have got to watch and they have got to recognize God has the Holy Spirit indwelling you and He will tell you. Just like He told Ezekiel. One final thing. The watchman has to be courageous. Because when he sounds or she sounds the alarm, gives the warning, other people will attack them. That's just the way it is. We've got to be ready. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together in your word. I thank you that we could look through these things and try and understand. Help us, Father, as we prepare for next week to learn that not only do we need to be watchmen, but we also have to commit to being warriors because we're in a fight. And even though apostasy is going to grow, we have been instructed to fight back because there are souls out there that are in the balance and we need to claim them for your love and your forgiveness. And so, Father, help us to learn how we far to fight back and what the warrior who faces apostasy is supposed to be about. It's not the way the world fights, but it's the way you've instructed us to fight. And so I pray, Father, that you will prepare us for next week and we will come to understand that. Now, Father, I pray that you protect our church and you'll keep the leaven out and that you help us to find any place of hidden leaven and we get rid of it Help us not to be timid or fearful because you have not given us a spirit of timidity or fear about sounding the warning when we see something that is wrong, that is contrary to your scripture, contrary to your Bible, or a teacher who is a false teacher because that's what apostates will do. They will bring in false teachers to tickle the ears of those who are listening. Help us not to be known as a church who tickles ears but a church that listens and obeys your scriptural mandates. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.